Now, I appreciate the start of the last podcast was a bit of a downer. So what I like to do to try and even things out is to make the next podcast really upbeat. The sun is shining. The weather is great. We can all have barbecues in the back garden with our mates again. Life is looking pretty peachy. And when the weather is good, it normally follows that patients don't phone the practice. They decide that their illnesses can wait for another day. Except this time things are different. Mid-pandemic, the phones are still going crazy. People keep complaining that they can't get through. They've been waiting for ages. None of them seem to be taking a step back and wondering why on earth that is. It's not that we lack receptionists, they're just flat out. The e-consults keep on piling in. People keep complaining. I haven't had my e-consult replied to yet. I sent it at 4am on a Sunday morning. It's now one minute past eight on Monday. This athlete's foot is not going to get better by itself. Well, perhaps it might do if you just did a bit of self-care. Actually, I had an e-consult this week that was firstly appropriate and secondly, actually saved me time. Still, in the grand scheme of things, this really was pissing in the wind. And I think it's probably fair to say for all of us all around the country, it's still tough out there. Never mind, at least the sun's shining, right? It's Wednesday, the 16th of June. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Why, hello there. Thanks for joining us. It's Neil Tucker here from MB Medical. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Once again, I'm doing this on a Wednesday, a little bit early in the week because Fridays have become progressively busier. This week, I am wing person for our mental health course, which is going out live on Friday morning. So if you're interested, if you have the time, then join myself and Siobhan Becker. Siobhan will be presenting the session. And of course, don't forget, if you're a subscriber to MB+, then it's all included in the package. And if you can't make Friday, you can watch it on demand. But what about today? So we are going to have a look at the latest BJGP and we're not really going to touch on any of the research in there, but it's quite an interesting addition. Very timely talking about the state of general practice and a series of articles from GPs around the country about what they see as the future of general practice, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Then we're going to have a look at a few research articles published in the last couple of weeks with a focus on technology, so in particular glucose monitoring and cardiac monitoring. Let's start with the BJGP then, and hand on my heart, I wasn't particularly inspired by any of the pieces of research they published this month, but it really was a fascinating addition and well worth a read. I didn't necessarily agree with everything that everyone was saying, but it certainly was thought-provoking. Some of it's stretched into the overly academic, but a lot of it also is clearly coming from GPs who are in the thick of it and desperately trying to think of ways to evolve the system to cope with what we've got to deal with at the moment. Part of the problem is that there's so many issues with general practice that no one can really address all of them in one article. The editor, Ewan Lawson, who I think has been doing a great job since he's taken over the helm of the BJGP, I think summed up possibly what most of us would consider the main problem, and that is demand and the amount of consultations that each of us is having to do on any single day. A couple of years ago, I think I talked about this on the podcast, I 
was surprised to find that the BMA actually has a whole document on what it feels is safe numbers of consultations for a GP to be doing in a day. And it's somewhere between 25 to 30, which, as um, Ewan Lawson suggests, is what most of our European colleagues are doing on a regular basis. Now, here in the UK, of course, we're probably doing at least double that. Not only is it not safe, but it's also exhausting and ultimately counterproductive because I think this is what's driven a large amount of the GP workforce crisis through a combination of insidious government pressure and a sense of moral obligation on our part as doctors. We've either allowed or accepted that our workload will relentlessly increase. As a result of us, most of us can't be five-day GPs anymore. It's just not mentally or physically possible. Most of us either stay really late in our practices to finish the work or we do it on our, in inverted commas, days off so that we can catch up. A couple of months ago, I remember my wife showing me quite a funny article that someone had written where a GP was being referred to the GMC for not wanting to take on additional leadership roles. It did not compute that this GP wanted to be just a GP. They didn't want to be an RCGP clinical champion. They didn't want to be a programme director of the local VTS. They didn't even want to do a podcast, can you believe? They just wanted to do the job that they signed up to do. If I can find a link to it, I'll post it. It is really amusing. And there's a lot of truth to it. Many of us would be very happy just doing the day job. But the reality is that for most of us, we just can't hack it. Doing general practice five days a week is a rarity. Most of us take on other jobs to give us a bit of respite from our main role. Of course, this is a vicious spiral. The less hours that we work in a practice, the worse the hours that we do work in a practice are going to be because the demand is the same or indeed ever increasing. And the supply of clinicians, even in England with the PCNs and the additional workforces linked with that, the, the supply cannot meet the demand. If we were to consider that the number of high contacts that we have each day is the main problem driving issues in general practice, I think one could argue there is a solution. I think that we do have enough people. We do have a big enough workforce. I think if you made conditions better for clinicians, then they could work and would want to work more. If we had a structured day where we worked from 9 to 5, where you saw between 20 and 25 patients at 20-minute intervals, with dedicated time set aside during the day where you do your phone calls and admin, where you don't get bombarded with loads of extra emails or e-consults, then our working lives would be greatly improved. Our patients would get more time with us we could optimise their management and because the days are no longer hellishly stressful, many of us may choose to start working more once again. It would be once again feasible to work five days a week. Patient continuity would improve and as many of the BJGP articles quote this month, that translates into better outcomes for patients and efficiencies for the health service. The barrier here is of course money. We should be fairly compensated for those five days a week. A salary GP like myself might actually get offered a lower sessional rate. But actually, compared with what we do at the moment, the hourly rate is probably better. And overall, one might earn more because working more becomes a realistic prospect. There's two barriers, of course, then to this concept. The first is that the government get general practice on the cheap. 
and will always try to limit any funding increases. The other issue is that it does not fit easily into the partnership model also for funding reasons. Another article this month in the BJGP, this on the website, not in the actual journal itself, comes from Claire Girarda, who makes a range of suggestions, many of which I think are very, very sensible, one of which is that the partnership model is outdated. She acknowledges that many people disagree. I, for one, agree with her. This may just reflect my inherent biases. I was a partner a very long time ago. Um, For a not very long period, it didn't really suit me very well. I've been salaried for many years and have been happy to not have to get involved with the extra responsibilities of partnership. That hasn't meant that I've got to go home at a decent time. No, I get to go home two to three hours late every day. But it has spared me the agony of running a business as well as doing the day job. I guess the reality is some of you may be running very happy and successful partnerships out there. But I also know from the emails that lots of you are just generally overwhelmed with the workload. And all the recent changes and all the modern technology doesn't seem to have addressed that. But perhaps the issues in general practice are not just about demand and pay. Perhaps they are about a crisis of identity. So this is one of the editorials in the BJGP entitled A Crisis of Identity. What is the essence of general practice? And I really thought when I saw the title that this was going to talk about what being a GP really means and how GPs see themselves. So I was a bit disappointed in truth with their overly academic argument. They suggest that the issue is that on the one hand, we've been driven by guidelines to try and minimise risk for our patients. And that concept is diametrically opposed to the more traditional concept of general practice where we have a more meaningful narrative with our patient and can accept there's always going to be some risk. They go on towards the end to suggest that we explicitly analyse our decision-making processes through the different lenses of the performative, the ethical and the relational. At this point I realised I'm out. Now I genuinely do believe that we have a crisis of identity in general practice and this is certainly not helping with our own state of minds and workforce retention. The job that I signed up to do about 15 years ago seems to be increasingly remote. I want to be a classic general practitioner, a generalist. I want to see the whole gamut of medical problems. But these days, so much of traditional general practice, the otitis medias, the sore throat, the acne, the eczema, all of these things are siphoned away from us and seen by our non-GP clinician colleagues. A lot of the time it feels like we're left with just the most complex cases for which we're not given enough time or mental health, which we're also not given enough time for. And I do want to be seeing this type of case, but I don't want it to be all that I'm seeing. And many of these articles talk about the importance of continuity and context in society for patients. I would argue if we're only seeing a narrow subset of patients or we're only seeing patients when they have a narrow subset of illnesses, then we've already lost that context that was so innate to traditional general practice. Here is our crisis of identity. Do we want to be traditional general practitioners? Can we ever reclaim that role? Or do we want to be specialist generalists supervising a range of clinicians with different areas of expertise who are seeing the majority of our patients while we focus on the most complex patients which inevitably is the elderly with significant chronic disease? 
This, of course, aligns slightly more neatly with the path of general practice at the moment, particularly in England with our PCNs. But for me, that's a shame because I deeply want to be the former. I would be very interested to know what you guys think out there. Right, so that's enough of my 10-minute rage about general practice at the moment. Loads of you are going to get really fed up at that if I keep on doing it. So I think it's time to look at some research. And this is interesting because the most interesting articles that have published in the last couple of weeks for me are ones that all involve technology. And as I talk about traditional general practice, one might wonder where technology fits into that. But I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. I am somewhat suspicious of the potential benefits of some of the new technologies, particularly the wearable technologies where people can just get loads and loads of physiological information all the time. But I'm also conscious that for all of the consumer tech magazines that I somewhat geekily keep an eye on, I'm also rapidly becoming out of touch with the advances in medical technologies. I had a patient who came to see me last week who'd been recommended to have a pacemaker And he was asking me if I thought he should have the traditional device that, as we all know, sits in the chest wall, or if he should have this bullet type device that's inserted into the heart via angioplasty. And I had to tell him that I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. So let's kick off with a paper in JAMA. And this was looking at patients who have had a stroke. As we all know, atrial fibrillation is a common reason why people end up having a stroke. And as we all know, AF is often under-recognized, even when we try our best to identify it after a stroke. So it might have slipped under your radar that last year, NICE issued a diagnostics guideline, which recommended the use of an implantable cardiac arrhythmia monitor in patients who have had a cryptogenic stroke so that's a stroke where we don't have any identifiable cause so these devices are um, small devices a few centimeters long implanted under the skin in a person's chest wall and they continuously monitor the heart for irregular rhythms and they do that for four years which is how long the battery lasts in the JAMA paper they are using a new device it's from the same company as that recommended by nice but it's a newer device and it's smaller so apparently one third the size of an triple a battery so pretty tiny so they clearly wanted to see if this still is effective so this was a randomized control trial about 500 patients half given this implantable cardiac monitor within 10 days of their stroke and the other half receiving usual care which included having had ECGs, halter monitors, event monitors and so forth. At 12 months the implantable device had identified AF in 12% of patients. In the usual care group they only discovered it in 2%. The data that NICE recommended these devices on actually suggests that over a three-year period of these devices monitoring your heart, 30 to 40% of people will be discovered to have AF after stroke. So the benefits keep accruing and it's very, very clear that we are missing a lot of people who are at high risk of recurrence of their stroke because... They do have AF, that is the underlying cause, and we just can't identify it that well with such short-term and intermittent monitors. The new technology does genuinely appear to be adding a lot to 
these patients' management and their future safety. The other big area of medical devices is in glucose monitoring, and that's the second paper in JAMA that we're going to have a look at. So currently in the UK, we're a little restricted in our patients who are allowed to be prescribed, shall we say, wearable glucose monitors like the Freestyle Libra. It's mostly for people with type 1 diabetes or very poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. Interestingly, there is a growing use of these devices outside of medicine. So I was reading this week that the UCI, the um, world governing body for professional cyclists, has banned the use of these glucose monitoring devices during races like the Tour de France. They've become increasingly commonplace in endurance athletes to help them optimally manage their glucose levels during a competition. I don't necessarily think that that's a terrible thing. I'm not entirely sure that there's a justifiable reason for for banning it apart from to try and make it a level playing field for athletes who don't have access to the technology. But I think it is a sign of things to come and we're inevitably going to see this trickle down further into more routine parts of our lives. Anyway, back to medicine, and this JAMA paper was looking at patients with type 2 diabetes but who still needed to have some basal insulin on a daily basis. And they wanted to know if continuous blood glucose monitoring was a more effective strategy than simple blood glucose meter readings at controlling someone's HbA1c. So continuous blood glucose monitoring is something that goes a little bit further than what the Freestyle Libra does. That'll give you some frequent readings when you put your monitor or your phone against the wearable device. But continuous blood glucose monitoring is actually constantly monitoring what's going on and constantly feeding that back to somewhere. And there's growing interest in this as an idea. So in this randomized controlled trial of 175 type 2 diabetics who were receiving at least one or two injections of insulin per day, mean baseline HbA1c of 9.1%. It's interesting, isn't it? In the American papers, they're not using the international figures. At eight months, they found the continuous blood glucose monitoring group had a fall in HbA1c of 1% versus 0.6% in the uh, standard blood glucose meter reading group. The continuous group spent more time in their target glucose range, so 59% of the time compared with 43% of the time with a standard monitoring group but they both had the same number of severe hypoglycemic episodes so no great improvement there although it's fair to say that the rates of severe hypoglycemia were very low anyway. So certainly there are some measurable benefits of using a continuous monitoring system but the benefits aren't that huge in this type 2 diabetic on insulin group. One wonders whether a body like NICE would consider it cost-effective. Currently it doesn't. I'd be surprised if this changes that. What about type 1 diabetics? Well, of course, there's much more freedom for those in the UK to have the Freestyle Libra system on the NHS. We do have one final paper. That's from The Lancet, and that's looking at type 1 diabetics and comparing the role of intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitoring, which is I think what the Freestyle Libra system is doing versus uh, real-time continuous glucose monitoring where it's giving you continual feedback. 
And when they compared these methods, they found that the real-time monitoring group spent a little bit more time in their target glucose range. So 59.5% of the time versus 52% of the time. And they had a 0.3 improvement in their HbA1c. The authors conclude that this shows that it's better. But the reality is most of us will question how much better. It's probably fair to say that both of these methods are probably just pretty good. And particularly for type 1 diabetics, a big improvement on just doing loads and loads of finger pricks. So I think we can be really positive about this new technology in this group. But it's also true that too much data is not necessarily a good thing. I think one of the most useful functions that these devices have is if someone's going hypoglycemic, it sets off an alarm. And I don't think it has to be a real-time monitor versus one of these more intermittent monitors to achieve that. But I think that is a big advance for anyone who's using insulin. Okay, that is long enough for today. Thanks for joining us once again. Don't forget the mental health course on Friday. We have a Hot Topics course live, which I'm one of the presenters for on Saturday as well. As ever, all of these you can see on demand too if you can't make the live version. And as ever, please do get in touch. So Hot Topics at NB Medical, um, at GP Hot Topics on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, just search for NB Medical as well. And I wish you all a very, very pleasant and restful weekend. Look after yourselves, everyone. Bye-bye.